Hello everyone, welcome back to the Ranking President Show. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. Merry almost Christmas, everyone. Yes, you know, happy holidays. We are at the second part of JFK. We're going to learn if he actually holds up to the legend. Yeah, after talking about all of the sexy stuff, what did he do as president? Well, you know a lot of stuff. So, his domestic policy actually started out as an accessory to FDR's policy, but could he sustain it? So, he referred to his agenda as not the New Deal, but the New Frontier. Hmm. Which, you know, sounds about apropos. Yeah. So, he actually gave the speech at the Democratic National Convention. So, I'm going to read you a little bit of the speech. So, today our concern must be with the future, for the world is changing. The old era is ending. The old ways will not do. Here at home, the changing face of the future is equally evolutionary. The New Deal and Fair Deal were both measures for their generations, but this is a new generation. Scroll down here. And there has been a change, a slippage in our intellectual and moral strength. Hmm. Seven lean years of drought and famine have withered in a field of ideas. Blight has centered on regulatory agencies, and a dry rot began in Washington and seeping to every corner of America. And the payola mentality, the expense account way of life, the confusion between what is legal and what is right. Too many Americans have lost their way, their will, and their sense of historic purpose. It is time, in short, for a new generation of leadership, new men to cope with new problems and new opportunities. All over the world, particularly in younger nations, young men are coming to power. Men who are not bound by the traditions of the past. Men who are not blinded by the old fears and hates and rivalries. Young men who cast off old slogans and delusions and suspicions. Ooh. Today, some would say these struggles are all over. The horizons have been explored, all the battles have been won, there is no longer an American frontier. But I trust that no one in this vast assemblage will agree with these sentiments. For the problems are not all solved, and the battles are not all won, and we stand today in the edge of a new frontier. I tell you the new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. Beyond that frontier are the uncharted areas of science and space. <laughs> science and space. <laughs> unsolved problems of peace and war. Unconquered pockets of ignorance and prejudice. Unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. It would be easier to shrink back from that frontier, to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, to be lulled by good intentions and high rhetoric. And those who prefer that course should not cast their votes for me, regardless of potty. But I believe the times demand new invention, innovation, imagination, decision. I am teaching each of you to be pioneers of that new frontier. For courage, not complacency, is our need today. Leadership, not salesmen. And the only valid types of leadership is the ability of lead and to lead vigorously. Vigorously. Are we up to the task? Are we equally to the challenge? Are we willing to match the Russian sacrifice of the present for the future? Or must we sacrifice our future in order to enjoy the present? That is the question of the new frontier. That is the question our nation must make. A choice that lies not between two men and two parties, but between the public interests and private comfort. Between national greatness and national decline. Between the fresh air of progress and the stale, dank atmosphere of normalcy. Between determined dedication and creeping mediocrity. Man, like, presidents just don't talk like this anymore. No, they don't. And let, let me just say something. It's, it's fascinating that he literally spent half of that speech bashing the 50s for making Americans soft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, we need new frontiers. And, like, the way he's talking, he uses, he uses such, like, advanced vocabulary. Right. Yeah, yeah, like he does. He doesn't put the kid gloves on to talk to the American people. It sounds like. Yeah, it seems like nowadays presidents kind of talk like you either got the Trump speaker, you got the Biden like grandpa on your lap. Like, yeah. listen here, y'all, <laughs> <laughs> have an ice cream. Yeah, 
corn pop. <laughs> so this is a pretty tall order, but can JFK carry it out? Well, well. he has some problems. <laughs> for one, Southern Democrats were suspicious of Kennedy for his Northeastern background and policies. Also, Kennedy had a pretty small margin of victory. And with his focus on more foreign policy, as Chris will talk about later, passing legislation would be difficult. Oh, okay. Quick aside. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously, the, the debates between Nixon and JFK are renowned because they're the first televised debates, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So, my dad was not born yet, no. but he said that his dad, our grand, our grandfather, always yep. always told a story of like when he first saw those televised debates between Nixon and JFK. Nixon kind of like was tripping over his words a lot, yeah. And he pointed at the TV and was like, "JFK's gonna win." <laughs> <laughs> a prophetic word. Yep. Yeah, that's I've heard various theories about whether how much that impacted it, but I definitely did showcase the fact that JFK is this polished televised guy, and Nixon just not. And also, he's handsome. He is and handsome. Nixon, unfortunately, was not. <laughs> nope, nope. Old handsome Jack. However, as JFK earned office, the U.S. was actually going through a recession. Bank incomes had decreased by 24%. Bankruptcies were at the highest since 1951, and 5.5 million people were out of work. So, Kennedy's main aims were actually to lower taxes, to make conservatives happy, hmm. but to also give unemployed people more protections to increase the minimum wage and energize the business sector. His advisor argued he could fine-tune the economy, and the recession would actually end up fading away, part due to all this money flowing into domestic and foreign affairs. Oh, foreign affairs. Yep. At the same time, Kennedy's more, what I like to call, New Deal-ish-minded policies had trouble passing for a variety of reasons. First of all, there, the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, died. And the new Speaker of House, William McCormack, had little influence. Kennedy would thus put his focus on five bills. Federal assistance for education, medical insurance for the elderly, housing reform, federal aid to struggling areas, and an increase in the minimum wage. He actually would end up passing the Minimum Wage Act, increasing it to $1.25. Okay. It's crazy the minimum wage was that low at that point. Yeah. Inflation. The Republicans managed to exempt laundry workers from the law. Laundry workers. As they always do. They always find, well, you know, that bit industry can't still paying people fair amount. <laughs> he would also be able to pass the Area Redevelopment Act, which provided federal funding to struggling regions, and the Housing Act, which gave funds for urban renewal and gave federal mortgage loans for those who didn't have public housing. However, on the education question, he had more trouble. He called for $2.3 billion in aid, but was defeated in the House. This was due in part to the question of parochial schools, which Kennedy opposed since he was Catholic and didn't want to appear to be too biased towards Catholic parochial oh. schools. LBJ is a Protestant and didn't have these problems, so he ended up with passing it his presidency. Oh, gotcha. So a little bit of, you know, local problems. Mm -hmm. Kennedy also passed the Manpower Development and Training Act, which provided training and approved grants and loans to construct higher education facilities. He also passed the Community Mental Health Act, to provide funding to mental health community centers, as well as services such as alcoholism help and marriage counseling. Huh. As to help people who have alcoholism, not to help people get alcoholism. <laughs> we need more alcoholics in our country. That sounds like that would be Al Capone's plan. <laughs> Kennedy also passed the 1962 Trade Expansion Act, which gave him the power to cut tariffs and to target countries that employ discriminatory tariffs. Which I feel like 
you know, tariffs seem kind of boring, but I can just see, like, so many presidents back in the day, like, rolling over in their graves over that. Yeah. That's... Ability to control tariffs? No! That's a lot of power. Yeah. Because, like, presidents would fight so much to deal with tariffs. Yep. However, other proposals died in Congress. First of all, his Department of Urban Affairs got shut down because Southern Democrats thought he would put an African-American in charge of it. Huh. Just because of that. In fact, Kennedy, but did Kennedy did appoint Thurgold Marshall, a black man, to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Next up, his medical program for the elderly got killed by both conservatives and the American Medical Association. I'm sure they'll never do anything bad again. Nah. So let's talk a little bit about civil rights, because this is kind of a big issue for Kennedy, and it's going to continue to be a big issue for LBJ and Nixon. I mean, I feel like beyond. I feel like here's the thing: like you, you learn about civil rights in high school or mm-hmm. even middle school. And, like, yeah, LBJ was the one who, like, passed the big legislation, but I feel like Kennedy is almost more the face of the Civil Rights Act, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think part of that is just because Kennedy got shot in the sass. You know? Yeah. He got killed. Almost, like, deified a little bit. Yeah. And plus, just he had, I mean, when you compare Kennedy and LBJ, I mean, who has the more royal face? Well, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. And he had the charisma. Yeah, and the golden voice, you know Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Yeah. He had so many just inspirational phrases to the Mm -hmm. point where we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but he's glorified by both conservatives and liberals. Yeah. Which is very, very weird. Yeah. Because even like FDR has a little bit of that, but FDR also gets a little bit more conservative hate because, like, man, those New Deal programs were no good. Mm -hmm. So, civil rights is a big issue, and it will certainly impact Kennedy's policy. Although early on, it might not have had as much of an impact as you might think. Oh, did it? Yep. So, for one, Kennedy's big plan was, I just want to stay out of it. And Robert Kennedy said the administration's goal was to to keep the president out of this, quote, civil rights mess. Hmm. Which, you know, that sounds pretty common for president. Yeah. If there's something really controversial, be like, you know, I just don't want to, I just want to step out of it. See every president in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even today, like, you know, Biden's probably not going to get up and give a big speech about trans issues. Probably yeah. not. Probably not. But Kennedy did set up the President's Committee of Equal Employment Opportunity to look into employment discrimination. And his main goal is he didn't want to anger Southern supporters, and many civil rights folk considered him lukewarm. In fact, the Freedom Fighters, who had set up an integrated public transport, were opposed by Robert Kennedy, who said, get off the buses and leave the matter to peaceful settlement in the courts. Hmm. Kennedy himself didn't want to bring back fears of reconstruction by sending troops to enforce civil rights law. Also, Kennedy would appoint federal judges in the South who were in favor of Southern Democratic aims. And they heavily opposed any civil rights, in other words. And this was just because they were common, you know. Oh, you know, I got to appoint my buddies and let them, you know, appoint who they want to appoint. Yeah. You know? But in 1961, Kennedy would famously meet with one Martin Luther King Jr., who pressed Kennedy to outlaw segregation. Kennedy said, well, I'll think about it. Just send me a draft of what you want. Hmm. In turn, Kennedy, King wrote Kennedy a letter saying he, would, he wanted him to make a second Emancipation Proclamation ending segregation, just like Lincoln. Then, on September 1962, James Meredith attempted to enroll at the University of Mississippi. He was a black man. When he showed up at college, he wasn't allowed to enter. The situation and the governor prevented him from entering. The situation was growing tense, and Kennedy was trying to work with Governor Ross Barnett on it. But eventually, Kennedy agreed to send troops. 
But during Meredith's first day at class, a riot broke out known as Ole Miss Riot. Various far-right groups, including one by Major General Edwin Walker, the one Ole Harvey Oswald tried to assassinate, oh, wow. appeared on campus to rally the mob. Then the mob began attacking reporters and throwing Molotov cocktails. Whoa, that, that escalated quickly. Yep. And at one point, Ole Miss students fought with the mob when the mob tried to bring down the American flag and put up a Confederate one. The marshals hmm. there never returned fire under strict orders from Kennedy. And two people were killed. One French journalist, Paul Guillard, was shot. And also a white jukebox repairman who was sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gotcha. Another 300 people were wounded. So this was a pretty big event. This is yeah. something that would think like January 6th. Yeah. You know, I, I, I will say, though, I think that I, I do give Kennedy points for stressing, like, de-escalation tactics as opposed to, like, hey, somebody attacks you, shoot them. Yeah, because you can imagine, like, the white supremacists would have used that if, you know, a bunch yeah. of their kind. Like, imagine know. if, like, Andrew Jackson sent troops down yeah. there. <laughs> He'd be like, I'll hang every one of them. <laughs> and I'll lead the myself. <laughs> like, Andrew Jackson's the type of person would be like, there'd be a beheading, and he'd be the one wielding yeah. the sword, like Ned Stark in yep. the throne. yep. So, Kennedy actually blamed himself for not doing more to prevent the riots or sending troops sooner. And he began to doubt if Reconstruction really was all that bad, and mm. if those Southern stories were really true. So, okay, um, Reconstruction was officially ended in, like, roughly what year? Like, from by the government? I, it was ended in, in, during Rutherford B. Hayes, I think in about 1874? Which, which is interesting that, like, Kennedy would, like, be worried about that. Actually, because, 1870. Because even the... People who were born in the in the 1870s would be really old by this point. Yeah, but I think it was just those people would pass on the stories down to their yeah. kids, so yeah. it became a legend. It's still, still pretty fresh. Yeah, I mean, you look at movies like uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, you know that's all about the evils of Reconstruction. You know, <laughs> frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Mm -hmm. You know, the carpetbaggers and the scallywags, and yeah. that that legend is still in the South today. So. In response to this riot, Kennedy signed Executive Order 11063, which banned discrimination and federally support housing or facilities. Kennedy next sought to abolish the poll tax through a constitutional amendment. Oh, the slowest way you can go about it. What are you doing? Now, allegedly, this was to avoid a filibuster in the Senate. Now, many people weren't happy, but surprisingly, this actually didn't end up getting ratified on January 23, 1964, becoming the 24th Amendment. Huh. Sometimes it works. It yeah. Haven't worked for a very long time. <laughs> now, 1963, you think things get calmer? No, they get worse. <laughs> it's interesting how many crises are in Kennedy's presidency. A lot of crises. Because you would think with that many crises, most of the time if a president has that many crises, things get wild. Yeah. Yeah. And crises really define Kennedy's presidency as well. Like, mm -hmm. There's just so many things that happen. So, 1963. We have the most famous civil rights incident ever, the Birmingham Campaign. Ooh. So, everyone knows about this. This is where peaceful protesters arrive with hose. You know, they, they arrive to basically protest, you know, segregation, and they were attacked by police. They were attacked with hoses, dogs, and it was all fully televised. And probably anyone who lived in that era could tell you about it, just remembering all those images. Oh, I'm sure. Like, I think you can see one where this guy's, like, his shirt is being held up and the dog is trying attacking him. Mm-hmm. And this really galvanized the nation. And then there were other things. Like, on June 11th, 
Kennedy would have to intervene when George Walsh prevented two African-American students from attending the University of Alabama. Okay, uh, this might be a different person, but wasn't George Wallace like an active KKK member? Or is that a different Wallace? I'm not positive about that, if you want to look that I'm, up. I'm going to look that George up. George Walsh quick. was, I believe George Walsh was a guy who was said segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Again, I could be wrong about that, you know. But George Walsh was a pretty racist dude. Mm-hmm. And on that same night that that happened, Kennedy gave an address on civil rights where he would call for a new civil rights bill. Oh. He would say, this is not a sectional issue, but segregation and discrimination are everywhere, and every American should be treated as he wished to be treated. Okay, George Wallace was just incredibly racist. I don't see yeah. any direct ties to the KKK. Fun fact, I believe my mom actually met him after those days. Really? Where he was running for office, and she's like, you know, I shook George Wallace's hand, and he seemed, you know, a pretty nice guy. Uh. It was kind of funny. Yeah, George Wallace kind of had like a rebirth afterwards when he tried to rebrand himself. But, you know. Oh, here's a, here's an interesting fact according to Wikipedia. Wallace took the oath of office on January 14th, 1963, standing on the gold star marking the spot where 102 years earlier Jefferson Davis was sworn in. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Shady Jeff. I'm sure that, you know, wasn't related at all. Oh, but his, so Wallace's uh, speechwriter was KKK, though. Mm, of course. Interesting. There's connections everywhere. Yep. Okay. So Kennedy in this speech, and you can actually go watch it online, because it was a televised speech, and it sort of, you know, came on programs and said, now, a uh, presentation from the president. It's like in the top ten most iconic presidential speeches mm-hmm. ever, probably. And he gave statistics. He said things like, black babies born in America, compared to a white baby born in the same town in America, had only a one-third of a chance of graduating high school, one-third of a chance to going to college, seven years shorter life expectancy, and half the expected lifetime earnings. Wow. He presented as a moral issue. Quote, The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if, in short, he cannot employ the full enjoy, the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin change and stand in his place? Who among us would be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves. Yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not truly free. They are not fully free from social oppression, economic oppression. And John Lewis, a famous civil rights leader, would yeah. say... I think the speech that President Kennedy made was forceful. He was the first president to say the question of civil rights was a moral issue. He reminded us what it was like to be black or white in the American South in that speech. I listened to every word of that speech. Now, that was words. What about action? Well, Kennedy would press forward the Civil Rights Act, but the reason why he didn't do it sooner is he had actually wanted to delay sending any of that legislation until his second term, uh. where he could pick up moderate Republican support. He feared doing his first term would sink the rest of his political agenda. But now, because of all these things that happened, he was forced to act. Now, for this presentation, more civil rights event would happen. First, the march to Washington, where MLK gave his most famous speech, I Have a Dream. Then there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, which killed four girls in September. Mm. 
ultimately his civil rights act would be passed under LBJ and all that stuff would get shuffled along the LBJ because Kennedy got assassinated. Yep. So that was his domestic policy. Surely his foreign policy won't be nearly as packed full of events. Mm, Surely nothing interesting will happen at all. Certainly nothing messy. Um, and uh, so we're we're gonna wait a little bit to do State of the Nation. We're mm-hmm. gonna hop right into yeah. Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, I have I have a little bit of a surprise State of the Nation okay. mixed in here. I, I like that. So changing it up. So before we get into um, his domestic or uh, his foreign policy, I did want to talk a little bit about his pers- personal racial beliefs. Yes, I would like to know that. And uh, I'm reading. Um, first of all, an opinion piece, but it's a piece on ABC News called Why JFK Decided to Embrace Civil Rights as a Moral Issue. Okay. All right, so um, let's see. They start by recapping like what you just said about uh, his speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and it said, while he had wrestled with the festering questions of civil rights in his two and a half years in the White House, Kennedy had resisted putting the full weight of the presidency behind it, contending that it was a legal issue over which he could do little. Among many others, sounds o- like Lincoln. A yeah, bit. a little bit. Among many others, uh, Martin Luther King Ju- Martin Luther King Jr. chided Kenneth- Kennedy for not bringing quote moral passion to the cause of racial equality. That changed on June 11th um, when Kennedy told his aides quote This is this is just a cool like has a lot of gravitas quote I want to go on television tonight. Mm, I like that. That's pretty awesome. Um, and then they recount what you said. Um, And then the article asked the question, why did Kennedy change course on civil rights? It came largely due to the influence and evolving view of his brother, Bobby Kennedy. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, who served as his attorney general and closest advisor. Like his brother, Bobby Kennedy had seen no great urgency in the cause of racial equality. By his own admission, he, quote, did not lie awake at night worrying about the problems of African Americans. But in the spring of 1963, his perspective began to change. By then, MLK had brought a direct action civil rights campaign to Birmingham, quote, the most thoroughly segregated city in the country, yep. where demonstrators were seized by vicious police dogs and brutalized by fire hoses that blasted 700 pounds of pressurized water. Arrested and thrown into solitary confinement, King scrawled his seminal, quote, letter from the Birmingham jail. Very interesting. Definitely would recommend you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, contributing to the slow awakening of the country to the urgency of civil rights. But a deeper ish, a deeper impression was made on Bobby Kennedy in New York City, where he met with a number of African-American activists who gathered at his, at his invitation. The group had been assembled by 38-year-old novelist James Baldwin, whose celebrated New York piece titled, quote, Letter from a Region in My Mind, claimed, quote, the Negroes of this country may never be able to rise to power, but they are well-placed indeed to precipitate chaos and bring down the curtain of the American dream. Mm. John Kennedy was among those who were taken by Baldwin's powerful essay and later by a Time Magazine cover story on Baldwin called, quote, The Root of the Negro Problem. He encouraged his brother to draw out Baldwin on the matter, and Baldwin and the rowdy group he put together as Bobby Kennedy's urging didn't hold at Bobby Kennedy's urging, didn't hold back. The gathering in the Kennedy family's spacious Central Park South apartment began civilly enough before Jerome Smith, a young freedom rider who had been arrested and hospitalized for the beatings he sustained, lit into the Attorney General about the plight of African Americans. He, quote, put it like it was, recalled actress and singer Lena Horne, quote, the plain basic suffering of being a Negro, unquote. Becoming so worked up in his diatribe that he blurted out he wanted to vomit just being in the same room with Bobby Kennedy. Mm, Passionate. Yeah. 
At least, that's what Kennedy heard. What Smith was trying to convey was that having to make a plea to the Attorney General for rights that should intrinsically be his as an American citizen made him feel like vomiting. Okay. So interesting, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting duality there about what they actually heard versus said. Nonetheless, the assault hit Kennedy between the eyes. As he turned to ignore Smith, the anger in the room hissed louder. Kennedy sat down, reeling, trying to collect himself. The Irish were, pers- were persecuted too. Were, were persecuted too. He yes. told the group, which is true, but yeah. also like, hmm, yeah, not as much. Not the same thing. His grandfather had landed on American shores as the uh, as the object of prejudice, and now, two, two generations later, his brother was president. As he took in Kennedy's words, Baldwin's scorn for his insularity was as palpable as his shock at his naivete. Man, this person's a good writer. Yeah, really good writer. His family had been in America far longer, Baldwin countered, and they were still clinging to society's lowest rung. Though the meeting lasted three hours, it stayed with Kennedy far longer. After, uh, quote, after Baldwin said Nicholas Katzenbach, Kennedy's deputy attorney general, quote, he was in absolute shock. Bobby expected to be an honorary black. He thought he knew so much, and he didn't. Of course he did. Initially, Kennedy seethed. Afterward, he excorated Baldwin to others. But as his anger cooled, his mind began to change, turning to empathy. In his own way, Bobby Kennedy knew what it was, what it was to grow up feeling inferior. In his case, in the shadow of his formidable older brothers, and he talked about how he would feel, how he would feel if his children were on the other side of Jim Crow's segregation. It's amazing what a little empathy does. Yeah. If he had been born black in America, he told an aide several days after the New York meeting, his feelings wouldn't have differed much from those of Baldwin. Afterward, he urged his brother to embrace civil rights as a moral issue, though the bulk of of President Kennedy's advisors counseled him against making his speech on June 11th, claiming it was too soon. Bobby Kennedy was the lone exception. Quote, he urged it, he felt it, he understood it, and he prevailed. Deputy Attorney General Burke Marshall said, quote, I don't think there was anyone in the cabinet except the president himself who felt that way on these issues, and the president got it from his brother. That makes sense, because Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, is sort of viewed as the champion of civil rights, mm-hmm. and that now we see why, because he had a personal interaction. Yeah. And you got to see it firsthand for what it was. Yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing, kind of like um, Truman before him, like what happens when you actually like listen, s- open your eyes and listen. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was kind of the reasoning behind JFK's like turnaround or gradual progression towards civil mm-hmm. rights. Thought that was pretty cool. That is very cool. All right, so let's talk some foreign policy with JFK. Some really um, fun stuff. The Miller Center had much to discuss. I'm sure they did. <laughs> that, that reminds me of that Billy Ray Cyrus meme where he just posts a picture of himself thinking, and, and it was, <laughs> and he just, and he just tweeted, "Much to think about." <laughs> <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus is just like a, he's just the perfect centrist American. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he he sang the greatest centrist song of all the time, "We the People." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's talk a little Bay of Pigs. Okay. Kennedy had only been in office two months when he ordered the implementation of a covert CIA plan inherited from the Eisenhower administration, which we talked about. So many of these things, if you look up something weird a president does, sometimes the other president started to plan it and they just implement it. Yep. But they end up getting the blame for it. Now, an interesting thing is he altered the plan dramatically. (laughs) I'm altering the deal. (laughs) (laughs) To topple Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Assured by military advisors and the CIA that its prospects for success were good, (laughs) Kennedy gave the green light. In the early hours of April 17, 1961, approximately 1,500 anti-Castro Cuban refugees landed at 
Bahia de Cochinos, the Bay of Pigs, on Cuba's southern coast. A series of crucial assumptions built into the plan proved false. (laughs) (laughs) And Castro's forces quickly overwhelmed the refugee force. Moreover, the Kennedy administration's cover story collapsed immediately. (laughs) You know what's hilarious about that is as soon as I hear that number 1,500, I'm like, there's no way that little amount. (laughs) Like, we're gonna gonna take over the entirety of Cuba. I mean, it could work if, like, the country is deeply politically divided, but it kind of reminds me of, like, Hitler invading Russia, being like, oh, we'll just kick in the door and the whole thing will come tumbling Yeah, there's totally not, like, millions and millions and millions of people. Yep. It soon became clear that despite the president's denial of U.S. involvement in the attempted coup, Washington was indeed behind it. Mm -hmm. The misadventure cost Kennedy dearly, yet his administration continued to press for Castro's ouster, launching the CIA-backed Operation Mongoose in November 1961 to to harass and destabilize the Cuban regime. (laughs) I hope it's called Mongoose. Operation Mongoose. We're going to poke it. <laughs> it sounds like something from, like, uh, oh, what's the name of that show with Perry the Platypus? Oh, oh, Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, it sounds like yep. a Phineas and Ferb yep. All right, let's talk a little bit about Vienna and Berlin. Okay. Still recovering from this humiliating political defeat, Kennedy met with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. That's definitely the last time we'll hear about him. Oh, never hear in, from him again. In Vienna in June 1961. Khrushchev renewed his threat to, quote, solve the long-running Berlin problem unilaterally. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to solve this problem. An announcement that in turn forced Kennedy to renew his pledge to respond to such a move with every means at his disposal, including nuclear weapons. Mm. In a dramatic move two months later, in mid-August 1961, the Soviets and East Germans constructed a wall separating East and West Berlin, providing the Cold War with its most tangible incarnation of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, almost everyone has sort of some memories of the Berlin Wall, especially yeah. of it coming down if you lived in that era. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that it wouldn't be resolved for literally like 20 years. Mm. 30 years, actually. It was 61, right? And it came down in like 80, 90 something? Well, yeah, did it, did it, it came down. Hold on, let me look that up. Because <laughs> well, like, um, obviously you have the speech of um, Reagan telling him to tear down the wall. Mm-hmm. Did it come down in uh, Reagan's presidency? No, it came down in 1989, November 9th, 1989, which I believe was during George H. Yeah, Bush's presidency. Yeah, because he was, he was uh, inaugurated in uh, 89. Yeah, and that sort of, that ended the Cold War, essentially. And then America's like, what are we going to do now? I say we give Bush all the credit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, back, so back to foreign policy. Anything else interesting happen? Oh, you know, a few things. Just a few things. <laughs> Let's talk about the CMC, the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is one I think I, I remember my mom talking about and how they were worried they were going to die. Like everyone <laughs> everyone was doing, you know, drills of like cover for a nuclear attack. Just get under your desk and cover your head. Nuclear attack. <laughs> it's like that will protect you from a nuclear blast clearly and i mean no wonder like everybody in like the cold war era kind of like walked around completely clinched up and like ready to like dive under a shelter yeah. because kennedy went to vienna just to like basically like throw his you know what in the table in front of uh in front of cruise i was like i'm a nuke you yeah throw his nuke <laughs> whip out his nuke on the table <laughs> and uh yeah no wonder people were scared out of their minds yeah by the fall of 62, Cuba again took center stage in the Cold War. In an effort to protect the Castro government, compete with China for the hearts of revolutionaries worldwide, and neutralize the massive American advantage in nuclear weapons, particularly as part of a new Berlin gambit, Khrushchev ordered a secret deployment of long-range nuclear missiles to Cuba, 
along with a force of 42,000 Soviet troops and other associated conventional and atomic weaponry. I can see why people were paranoid, because here's like a communist regime. Like, yeah. Literally, you know, you can swim to it from Florida, basically. Mm-hmm. And carrying probably enough uh, missiles to wipe out, I don't know, at least a good part of the planet. I don't know if we were quite at the yeah. wiping out the entire planet at yeah. once capability yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you were going to mention this, but... Oh, oh. Uh, are you talking about the the Russian uh, the Russian guy? The the Turkish missiles. Oh no no no! Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. So another thing, the U.S. had actually set up some nuclear weapons in Turkey as well, pointing mm. right at basically Khrushchev's house. So there's a little bit of back and forth. Yeah. With the Cold War. Yeah. It's just now we're getting a lot closer. <laughs> you see, the Cold War is a bit of a both sides issue. You see. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it kind of really was because that's how war typically works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're a Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For months, despite close American scrutiny, the Soviets managed to keep hidden the full extent of the buildup. But in mid-October, U.S. aerial reconnaissance detected the, the deployment of Soviet ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba, which could reach most of the continental United States within a matter of minutes. I love how, like, everything around Cuba, like, it's impossible to be sneaky. Yeah. Like, we tried to be sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> then, then the Russians are like, oh, you're not going to see us. <laughs> yeah. And then the Russians tried to be sneaky. Yep. <laughs> Kennedy consulted with his top advisors over a period of several days. I doubt he slept a single wink during those no, days. No, I don't think I would if, like, <laughs> hey, you know, the world could end. Yep. These meetings, conducted by the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or XCOM, that's fun, mm-hmm. uh, took place in utmost secrecy in order to maximize the range of available responses. Among the options considered were airstrikes on the missile bases, a full-scale invasion of Cuba, and a naval blockade of the island. Kennedy eventually chose a blockade, or quarantine of Cuba, backed up by the threat of imminent military action. In announcing his decision on national television on October 22, 1962, breaking the extraordinary secrecy surrounding the crisis to that point, I did not realize that Kennedy was the one who was like, hey, I'm going to get on TV and like reveal this entire thing to everybody around the world. That is completely that, nuts. That is, that is banana. That might be like... One of the boldest presidential, like, in terms of media communication decisions ever, if yeah, not number one. To say, one. hey, there are nukes in Cuba right now. And I love, there's actually this channel on YouTube called Extra Credits, and they did a whole series about And the way they keep on talking about this crisis is when one decision is made, it's like, and the world went one minute closer to midnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah the clock stopped right before mm-hmm. midnight during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oof. Kennedy warned that the purpose of the Soviet missiles in Cuba could be, quote, none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Can you imagine if that happened today? People would lose oh. their minds. Yep, yep. Can you, right, oh, can, you imagine, so. can you imagine Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> During the Cold War? Yeah. Twitter would be like, Nuke 63. <laughs> Apocalypse 63. <laughs> Russian lover 69. <laughs> The lines suddenly were drawn very firmly indeed. Yes. And the world held its breath. After several days of action and reaction, each seeming to bring the world closer to the brink of nuclear war, the two sides reached a deal. Mm-hmm. And part of that deal was that they'd both remove their nukes that were really close. Like, Kennedy's like, we'll take these nukes out of Turkey. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, that only came out recently. The documents were declassified, and they realized, oh, Bobby Kennedy cut a few deals. Oh, man. It's almost like all the Kennedys are president at the same time. Yeah. That's a, that's interesting because we don't really see too many, like, brother yeah. presidents. Like, I, I don't know if like, we've seen that. The last time we talked about that was, what, like, Ulysses S. Grant's brother was pretty involved? Yeah, yeah. And I guess you could say, like, you know, the Adams, you know, yeah. son pair. Yeah. yeah. 
Khrushchev would order the withdrawal of offensive missiles, and Kennedy would promise not to invade Cuba. Kennedy also secretly promised to withdraw American ballistic, ballistic nuclear missiles based in Turkey, as you yeah, mentioned, yeah. targeting the Soviet Union. Difficult negotiations aimed at finalizing the deal and verifying its implementation dragged out for several weeks. But on November 20th, 1962, Kennedy finally ordered the lifting of the naval blockade of Cuba. And now it's time for the state of the nation. Oh, boy. So, uh, and this is, this is a state, this, this directly affects America, but it, not, but it did not happen on American soil. Okay. On October 27th, 1962, Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov was on board the Soviet submarine B-59 near Cuba when the U.S. forces began dropping non-lethal depth charges. While the action was designed to encourage the Soviet submarines to surface, the crew of B-59 had been, had been, uh, n- had been incommunicado, and so were unaware of the intention. Okay. They thought they were witnessing the beginning of a Third World War. Oh, Can you imagine no. how horrifying that would oh, be? Oh, no. Trapped in the sweltering submarine, the air conditioning was no longer working. The crew feared death. But unknown to the U.S. forces, they had a special weapon at their ars- and their arsenal. A 10-kiloton nuclear torpedo. <laughs> they just had a torpedo <laughs> just yes. sitting there in yes. a submarine. What's more, the officers had permission to launch it without waiting for approval from Moscow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Two of the vessel's senior officers, including the captain, Valentin Savitsky, wanted to launch the missile. According to a report from the U.S. National Security Archive, Savitsky exclaimed, quote, We're going to blast them now. <laughs> we will start the nuclear war right away. We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not become the shame of the fleet. That would have been really bad. But there was an important caveat. All three senior officers on board had to agree to deploy the weapon. As That's a- at least somewhat smart. Yeah. As a result, the situation in the control room played out very differently. Arkhipov, the guy we mentioned at the top, refused to sanction the launch of the weapon and calmed the captain down. The torpedo was never fired. Had it been launched, the fate of the world would have been very different. The attack would probably have started a nuclear war, which would have caused global devastation, with uh, everybody dying. It's crazy that this guy isn't well-known. I've been saying it's crazy a lot in this episode, but it's true. that This guy is probably the most responsible person for saving the world. Yeah. Literally, like, they launch a single thing at Americans, and everything lights up. Yeah, yeah. America's gone, Soviet Union's gone, probably most of Western Europe is gone. Yep, yep. Most of society in and of itself goes back, like, 200 years. Mm -hmm. Um, If not further. Yep. Um, And I quoted this directly from an article from TheGuardian.com. And The Guardian... uh, and. The article was specifically the one talking about uh, Vasily Arkhipov, um, Soviet submarine captain who averted nuclear war, awarded Future of Life prize. So he was posthumously uh, given uh, a prize for his bravery. That's something. All right, hard left turn. Let's talk about space. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, we almost lost the world, but let's go into space. Yeah. Kennedy was also instrumental in the success of the nation's space program. An enthusiastic proponent of it in public, if dubious of its more scientific dimensions in private. (laughs) He vowed to have Americans on the moon by the end of the decade. Yeah, you got it right. Although the rockets would be launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida, Kennedy agreed to locate the headquarters of the Manned Spacecraft Center in Texas, the home state of his vice president, LBJ. Um, 
LBJ had previously been head of the Senate subcommittee in charge of funding the space program. Kennedy would not live to see the landing of the moon, obviously, in July 1969. Let's talk about the Peace Corps or and the origins thereof. President Kennedy created the Peace Corps by executive order in 1961, a reaction to both the growing spirit of activism throughout the West and communist efforts to capitalize on the decolonization process. Now, it's interesting. Okay, so me and you have, in my opinion, rightfully railed against colonialism. Yes, we A have. lot. Because yeah. it tends to lead to people becoming enslaved. Yes, or just general exploitation yeah. of native populations. And so it's interesting to 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 read, like, um, when decolonization practices were happening because American politicians, for whatever, for whatever, whether it be moral reasons or political reasons, like withdrawing, um, and then that creating a power vacuum in yeah. those colonies, and uh, this fascist communist regime seeing that as an opportunity to be like, hey, how about some quote-unquote communism in your life? Yeah, well, the third world specifically was just a battleground because you had the Americans on one side yep. who were you know, trying to put in play you know, capitalistic-minded people. Sometimes they were dictators, yep. and the communists were trying to do the same. So when you have this decolonization happening in all these countries trying to express themselves, you have all these ideologies and these big powers coming at them without their best interests in mind. The fact that with a lot of these colonized countries, so if you look at a map of the world and you look at a map of, say, Europe, the boundaries are all kind of weird, but they make sense because they're based on natural borders, natural yeah. borders. If you look at places like Africa and the Middle East, it's like straight line, weird shapes. That was done be just because the British and the French and various other colonizers just did it that way. Because they're like, eh, straight lines, eh, whatever. We'll yep. take this. Just divvied it up. And that has messed up those countries in so many different ways. Because mm. it would be like taking two groups that were always fighting each other and considering themselves separate nations. Like, eh, you're one country now. Oof. So there were a lot of problems with decolonization. You could yeah. do, we say this a lot, you could do a whole podcast about decolonization. Oh, yeah. Oh, and there, yeah. there are many. But so... Continue about the Peace Corps. All right. So, um, through the promotion of modernization and development, Peace Corps volunteers sought to improve social and economic conditions throughout the world. Their work also supported Kennedy's efforts in the Cold War battle for hearts and minds. Win the hearts and minds of the people. Yep. In September 1961, shortly after Congress formally endorsed the Peace Corps by making it a permanent program, the first volunteers went abroad to teach English in Ghana. Contingents of aid workers soon followed to Tanzania and India. The program proved enduring. By the end of the 20th century, the Peace Corps had sent more than 170,000 American volunteers to over 135 nations. I wonder, I'm sure the Peace Corps is still around, but I remember people talking about it a little bit more back in the day. Like, yeah. Oh, the Peace Corps, it's a great thing. Mm -hmm. Fears that Castro's example might inspire communist revolution throughout Latin America led Kennedy to offer a more specific program for hemispheric reform. That just sounds sketch. Hemispheric <laughs> reform. The Alliance for Progress. <laughs> it's it's like, first we got the Monroe Doctrine, then we got, well, here's Theodore's little colliery, and there's FDR's little colliery, and here's like, let's make an alliance for progress. <laughs> Uh, let's see. It was uh, announced in March 1961, and it, com and, and it comprised a series of measures to improve the region's social and economic fortunes. <laughs> this charter and the U.S. financial aid that came with it sought to improve America's standing in the region, though few Latin nations agreed with the U.S. embargo on Cuba or cooperated with it. They were like, yeah, I mean, you can try. 
Yeah. Well, it makes sense why they wouldn't trust him because America has messed with Latin America oh, yeah. so many yep. times. 100%. All right, let's touch a little bit on Southeast Asia. Although Laos presented Kennedy with an initial and recurring challenge in the in the region, by the end of his presidency, it was Vietnam that proved at, at least as difficult and potentially more dangerous. America had been sending military advisors to Saigon since the early 50s to help France in its war against Vietnamese communists for control of the nation. Yes, we, that decolonization process, France trying to hold on, and we yeah. being like... Well, I guess because, you know, you were our allies in World War II and, you know, Charles de Gaulle who led the country, you really want to keep Vietnam, so I guess we'll help you. And, you know, maybe con- prevent the communists. That certainly won't cause the Vietnamese to hate us. No, not at all. In 1961, Kennedy uh, increased this allotment and ordered in the Special Forces, an elite army unit, to train the South Vietnamese in counterinsurgency warfare. But war continued to spread, and by the end of Kennedy's presidency, 16,000 American... Military advisors were serving in Vietnam. I'm like, how many how many advisors do you need? Yeah, like, no, that seems sketch. That's a lot of people, you know, giving advice. Mm-hmm. As with other aspects of his administration, it is not clear how Kennedy would have handled America's growing commitment to Vietnam had he lived out his term in office. Yeah, a lot of it's what-ifs with yeah. how he would uh, impact And LBJ this. ended up getting it, and as we all know, he escalated it. Yep. So. Kennedy had announced plans in 1963 to reduce the number of American advisors, but this did not necessarily mean a reduction in the U.S. commitment. That's where the conspiracy theories come in, as we discussed last episode. Mm -hmm. The announcement was one of several measures designed to pressure Saigon into making reforms. Instead, the regime of President uh, Ngo Dim Dim continued its repression of political opponents. Deem was assassinated in November 1963 in a military coup, an act that perpetuated and arguably exacerbated the country's political instability. This was a major problem in the Vietnam War, because obviously it was North Vietnam versus South Vietnam, right? But there were also pro-communist guerrillas in South Vietnam. There was, Mm -hmm. I think, the Viet Cong. Yeah. But the South Vietnamese government was so corrupt that very few people wanted to support it. And we see that problem continue today with a little thing known as Afghanistan oh, and the man. Taliban. Oh, no. So this is a problem that sort of recurs. Yeah. All right, one last point, nuclear testing. Just months before his death, Kennedy secured an agreement with Britain and the Soviet Union to limit the testing of nuclear weapons in space, underwater, and in the Earth's atmosphere. Not only did it seek to reduce hazardous nuclear fallout, it also signaled the success of Kennedy's efforts to engage the Soviet Union in constructive negotiations and reduce Cold War tensions, a goal captured most famously in his June 1963 remarks at American University. (laughs) American University? American University. That's a real thing? That's like American football team of Washington (laughs) State. In the wake of the close call over Cuba, Kennedy considered this agreement his greatest accomplishment as president. There was a lot to that presidency, and we knew about most of those things, yeah. but still, to hear it all at once... Yeah, and all the little details and how it specifically impacted like how Kennedy actually did things. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, this brings up a question. Not only where is he ranked, but does he really live up to the legend? Ooh, that's a complicated question. It's very complicated. I think... So, okay, let, let, let's, let's take this piecemeal. Okay. Um... Do you think that he was effective in? We'll start. We'll start with. Uh, we'll start with civil rights. How effective was he with civil rights? Initially, not at all. Mm-hmm. Later, I mean, he passed. He pushes through a pretty 
comprehensive civil rights act. Yeah. And he really sets the stage for sort of, I want to say it's sort of the final act of the first stage of civil rights. Yeah. If that makes yeah. sense. That, that, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, like, did he maximize his entire presidency for civil rights? No, but he did come around and passed, like, I mean, up to that point, some of the most meaningful legislation so mm-hmm. far. And he also made some of the most enlightened comments that any president has made about civil rights that we've seen. And, like, I was reading some other articles about, like, um, how, um, like, African Americans have kind of a complicated view of JFK. Because, mm-hmm. like, back in, back in, like, the 60s, like, JFK was, like, deified. And, like, um, I even read this article, like, yeah, like, every African American had in their home a picture of Jesus, a picture of uh, Martin Luther King, and a picture, or it's either Martin Luther, no, I think it's JFK, because Martin Luther King was still alive. Yeah. Um, a picture of Abraham Lincoln and a picture of JFK. That that would make sense, because JFK really restarted yeah. that idea of let's actually do something. Let's take actual mm-hmm. legitimate action. But I mean, as pe- as we've gotten more information about like that time and like how the U S government functioned and like the systemic racism inherent, like, and as people like deconstruct that time too, like it, it's yeah. definitely more complicated. Yeah. And the sixties were a weird time. Sixties were the time of, you know, the internet's coming around. We have hippie culture. You have this the, idea the, of like, Hey the man, internet, the internet wasn't here. Yeah, like, hey, man, we'll solve the world with weed and peace. You know, yep. Make love, not war, man. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a transformative time in American culture. It was literally America, like, biting back at, like, the wholesomeness of the 50s. Yes. Which is funny, because the 50s are idolized, but it's like, well, 10 years later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, now, I think an- another interesting question is, and it's something that the more I read, like, about his holistic um, foreign policy, like, I think overall Kennedy did a pretty solid job with, like, Cold War stuff. Aside from, like, Bay of Pigs and, like, oh, yeah. furthering, like, Eisenhower, like, idiocy, um, he, I don't know how many presidents would have not just ended up getting all of us killed with the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is a really fair point, because this is a moment where America and the world comes the closest it's been to absolute destruction yeah and even though it was kind of caused by you know them putting missiles in turkey the fact they were able to work that out without there being this huge loss of life that deserves some major credit yeah and so i think ultimately like while we think of the cuban missile crisis like and sometimes we think of like oh yeah that was like a crisis is a screw up Mm -hmm. but like i mean he showed like astounding like dexterity and like foreign policy Mm -hmm. and i have to say and I said this a little bit earlier in the episode, but the fact that JFK had so many crises, I mean, he not only had civil rights crises, he had, you know, nuclear missile crisis. So yep. there's a lot to deal with. And the fact he comes out of that looking pretty rosy, I mean, part of that's, a big part of that's because he was assassinated. Yeah. But the fact he comes out looking so rosy is really impressive and says a lot about his presidency overall. Yeah, and like, like, like you mentioned, he, in essence, like, reduced the amount of, like, nuclear junk in the air that would have been caused by, like, decades of nuclear testing. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fact of just his inspirational, you know, presence and the things he said. You know, let not, ask not what your, you can, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for yeah, your like, country. Yeah, like, I think in terms of, like, the whole, like, intangible, like, was this, was this guy a good leader of people? 
I mean, I think that regardless of his, like, weird, like, uppity upbringing, like, he mm-hmm. seemed to be a pretty relatable leader to yes. a lot of people. Yes. And he, he did. didn't necessarily seem to, like, talk down to people, at least from the presidential pulpit. No. So, looking at where he ranks, so, obviously, we do through an S through an F tier. Let's go through them real quick. F tier. Millard Fillmore. Franklin Pierce. James Buchanan. Andrew Johnson. D tier. Andrew Jackson, John Tyler, Warren G. Harding, Van Buren, Hoover, and William Henry and, Harrison. And we're reading these from, like, the top to the bottom of the tiers, so, like, best to worst within their individual yes, tiers. Yes, yes. C tier, Calvin Coolidge, Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland. B tier, John Adams, Woodrow Wilson, James Garfield, and Zachary Taylor. A tier, Dwight Eisenhower, James Polk, Benjamin Harrison, William Howard Taft, James Madison, and Rutherford B. Hayes. A plus tier. Harry Truman, Thomas Jefferson, William McKinley, Ulysses S. Grant, and John Quincy Adams. And in S tier, we got number one, FDR, number two, Teddy Roosevelt, number three, Abraham Lincoln, number four, James Monroe, and number five, George Washington. I have a pretty good idea of where I think JFK Uh, should go. What about you, Curtis? I don't have a super solid one. Um, I'm going to talk through my process real quick. Okay. Um, I do not think he's F. No, I do not think he's D. No. I do not think he's C. <laughs> nope. Um, like, looking at B, I mean, Wilson's an interesting one that we put in B tier, because like we said at the time, you could literally argue almost anywhere for Woodrow Wilson. Yes, you um, could. Based on which of his policies you want to focus on. Yeah. Um, I do think that, uh, I do think JFK just, like, it's hard not to just give him crazy bonus points for averting the greatest disaster in, in like, world history. Yes. And starting the, one of the biggest civil rights acts, too. So, uh, thinking, like, because, I mean, to me, he's better than Dwight Eisenhower. I agree. So, I mean, I'm thinking A-plus tier. I'm actually thinking right below George Washington in Ooh, S-tier. Ooh, okay. Our, present your argument. Why is he better than, for example, Harry Truman, the top of A-plus tier? Well, I think Harry Truman tried to, was similar to JFK. They both tried to do some things, and they sort of faltered on policy, but then they got pretty strong in civil rights towards the end. Mm-hmm. But I think just the fact that JFK gets stronger at civil rights towards the end, and he averts the nuclear crisis, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harry Truman had is kind of similar, too, because he averted the Berlin air, airlift. He had the Berlin airlift, but he also had some problems in Korea. Mm-hmm. So they're very similar. I think JFK just has the slightest edge on him. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that... And then here's, some, here's something else that we haven't brought up in a while because we kind of just implicitly think about it, but, like, does do you think he deserves us being judge, jury, and executioner. Does he deserve a tier downgrade for his morality or lack thereof? Ah, that's a good point. All that's the affairs. Point. I think I think some of the some of the more wholesome listeners would be arguing like, oh, I mean, he was kind of a kind of a garbage guy personally. Yeah, that's something we haven't considered. And obviously Thomas Jefferson is a great example. He's an A plus tier. Yep. He's technically in one, two, three, four, five, six. He's, He's number seven. Number seven. Yeah. Like a Terrible person. What if, okay, what if we put him right below Harry Truman then for his morals and his also lack of action? What do you think? 
I like that. I like that a lot because I think that like him and Thomas Jefferson are similar in that they were both like they were both seen as like really good intelligent leaders mm-hmm. and like kind of like had quote unquote the right stuff to lead America, but yes. like bad people. Yeah. At the end of the day. You could argue they were the right man for the right time, but there's some problems there. Yeah. You know, there's a put an asterisk next to your name. Mm. That's that's okay. Recommendation, everyone. Go listen to the rap battle, Frederick Douglass versus Thomas Jefferson. Because uh. it has the best line ever when Thomas Jefferson's trying to explain why he supported slavery, basically. Frederick Douglass says, this ain't Louisiana, man. I ain't buying it. <laughs> Which is like one of my favorite lines uh, of rap yeah. battles ever. But to get back to JFK, I've got some final caucuses before we sign off for the day. And An extra meaty episode for you good listeners yep. today. So... It's the era of political civil rights, and we have many potential presidential champions to choose from. However, we can often see they're only dragged forward to take action on civil rights. With Kennedy, it took severe violence to cause him to take action. Ike only took action when the Supreme Court made its decision. With this in mind, how much credit should we really give him for civil rights? How much it- credit should we specifically give Kennedy? Yes. Hmm, that's, that's a good question. Um... I mean, I think that it's similar to a lot of things we give presidents credit for. Like, yes. I mean, should we give, like, FDR full credit for all of his policies when he probably had, like, thousands of people working underneath him to draft the policies? Yes, or he had many people pushing him in that direction. Yeah, exactly. Or, like, um, I mean, I feel like with earlier presidents, it's easier to give them credit for things because they more kind of had their hands stuck in like what they were working on. Like mm-hmm. Jefferson, I mean, kind of deserves most of the credit for the Louisiana, Louisiana Purchase. Yes, and you also remember the country was just smaller and the government was smaller back yeah, then. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in terms of like credit, it's kind of like, it, it, it's a weird subjective thing to it argue is. to a certain degree. And I mean, I think it's, a, I think that makes it a great question because, mm-hmm. um, it, Final Coxes is about making us both like awkward and uncomfortable about talking about things. Yeah. Um, but I think that he he at least deserves credit for more than any other president up to that point putting racial issues in the public conscience as a moral issue. I think that I think yes. maybe that even more so than like giving him credit for the actual legislation which a lot of people worked on. Um, is what he really like earned. Yes, presidents are have changed in the modern era. They really are more about moral leaders than they are about legislation. It's yeah. about what they say, what direction they try to take the country in. Like it, it like in terms of legislation, it kind of peaked with FDR, and then it went back down slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. JFK deserves credit for taking the political risk. Yeah. Because let's not forget, it was a political risk because he knew it could sink the rest of his agenda. And Southern Democrats, who are a big part of the party, aren't going to like it. Yeah. So it is a political risk, so I'll give them credit for that. But I do have a second one. And this one's a little bit more of a fun one. Give it to me. Both the Soviet Union and the U.S. spent billions of dollars trying to beat each other to space. Yep. Now, the space race, unlike anything else, feels like a really strange competition. Yeah. It's an attempt to gain prestige while also having military uses, but we're not going to, you know, let's shove that aside. (laughs) Space Force. Yeah, Space Force. 
With all that being said, was the space race actually worth it, or would have a UN-led effort been the better choice? Okay, okay, let, let okay, a couple different couple different sides we can approach this from. Yes. Um, from an actual like, um, was it worth it putting American dollars into the space race? Probably not. <laughs> Be, because like, okay, yes, like I understand, like from a human humanistic standpoint, like yes. We explore, we, like, see new frontiers, and, like, it did inspire a lot of people to, like, see America eventually go to the moon, like, go up into space. Yes, it's iconic. But imagine if they took a fraction of that and put it towards, like, I don't know, like, actual programs to help people on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, as a program, it's interesting as a development as a purely scientific thing, and it's cool to see America dump money into science, yeah. but... At the same time, you know, after we got to the moon, like, we still do stuff with space, don't get me wrong, but... Nothing's ever going to beat the moon unless we unless we land a man on Mars. Yeah, and we're still <laughs> oh, not, not quite there. A good, you know? like, 150 to 200 years yeah, from now. Yeah, Elon Musk is like, oh, I'm going to get there, and, you know, <laughs> privatize Mars. Phallus rock. Yeah, phallus rock. I think the space race in general was just a contest between the Soviet Union and the U.S. to prove who could be more impressive. And also, if we if we put the U.N. in charge of it, the best we would have gotten is like, hmm, we're going to put a telescope onto this bird and send it up. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's as much as they could agree on to get done. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's It kind of plays in that idea that competition breeds innovation. Yeah. Which it does to a certain degree, mm -hmm. but and I mean, we had a final caucus one time about like I think it was the Civil War, um, and if it was worth it for just for the technological innovations. Yeah, yeah, and World War Two as well. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a tough one. I think at the end of the day, you have to balance like the amount of money spent versus sort of the inspiration it gave to Americans. Yeah, which that inspiration, I mean, boomers watched. <laughs> them go on the moon boomers like space <laughs> i mean star wars i don't think it's any coincidence that star wars came out right after we got a man on the moon made by boomers for boomers <laughs> exactly <laughs> some good quality boomer content yep you gotta love the star war mm -hmm. so that was jfk bit longer for an episode than yep. usual yep. but that's just how it's gonna be in the modern era the real question is do we think we can have LBJ be in one episode? Like oh. like like with Eisenhower, where we kind of lamented the fact that we might have crammed too much into one episode? Or uh, should we split it into two? That is a great question. I feel like you we, we probably need to split it into two because we'll have two huge things to discuss. We'll have all the civil rights and policy try to pass, and then we'll have Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. So we might have to split it into two. We'll figure out how we'll split that up. I mean, we split JFK in two, and he had three years as president. Exactly. So, so once again, thank you for joining us. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. Stay ranking. Rank.